We're talking about what it is to live a worthy life. A life that matters. If you would, turn to Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Chapter 19. I've been reflecting a lot on some of the things that Kevin Ham brought up in his sermon a few weeks ago. He made a comment that I want to elaborate on a little bit because I think it's highly important. This church holds to what is called a free grace gospel. Free grace is an interesting term because it's a redundant term. Uh, grace is free. So why do you have to qualify it? by saying It's like saying grace, grace. We hold a grace, grace gospel, which I'm okay with that, right? I'm a big fan of grace because without it, I'd be in big trouble. But the idea is, is that we believe that God was not obligated in any way to save any person at all. But out of His grace, He's chosen to make salvation available for the world. And so He sends Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place as a perfect substitute who did nothing wrong. And in doing so, His death doesn't just forgive one sin or one person's sin, but it is forgiven all sin for all time, past, present, and future. This means that salvation is available to every single person and that sin is not the barrier that keeps people from being saved anymore. What keeps people from being saved is unbelief. When they hear the gospel, they either believe it or they don't. This is why we say that we believe the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone. Faith, or a conviction that something is true, is the means of how you appropriate the gift made available to you. It is not by doing better. It's not by trying harder. It's not by walking the aisle. It's not by praying a prayer. It's not by repenting of all of your sins, regardless of how famous that is. There is nothing we can do whatsoever to bring to the table. And anything that we try to bring to the table is so imperfect when we bring it. It further serves as charges against us of the desperate, perfect salvation that we need. Therefore, that saving work cannot be found in any way in you and I. We are sinners. Not by trade, but by origin. And how do we know that? Because Adam sinned. There was a time when Adam didn't believe God. And that was enough to plunge him and everybody that stems from him into a depraved state with the complete inability to conjure up anything to save themselves. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, is the idea. Now the beautiful thing about it is, is that the gospel is good news. Jesus Christ has died on the cross for sins, and He's raised from the grave, and we are the only belief system in the entire world that has a living Savior. If you back that up a little bit, you actually find out that we're the only belief system in the world that has a Savior. Every other system in the world tells you what you have to do, must do, ought to do, should do, should be doing, and if you have not done, you're damned. 
in order to receive acceptance before God. That's what we would classify the category called religion. However, if you want to talk about what it is to have eternal life, that is looking to the Savior who has done all the work necessary that God requires in order to accept people into His presence because in order to be there, every single person needs a righteousness like God's. And if it's not like God's, it is not righteousness. Everybody notice that the word righteousness has the word right in it? Man, that'll ruffle some politically correct feathers today. I love it. Why is that? Because it's right. And he didn't deserve death and he died anyway. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And so the gospel call is believe, believe, believe. And by believing, you are now justified before God, declared righteous in his sight. Declares you that way. You don't become righteous, he declares you as righteous. Which means, despite the sin that keeps going on in our lives, He still sees us through Christ. And because He sees us through Christ, He sees us as perfect. Uh, It's almost like He puts on His Jesus-colored glasses to look at us. Let's say it that way. Maybe that will help illustrate that a little bit more. But now that forgiveness of sins that has been purchased on the cross has now been applied to you. No more sin. In fact, it is irrational for us to sin Because we have parted ways with it long ago. Does that make sense? So in our daily lives when we sin, it's completely incompatible. It's incongruent with who we are as a new person in Christ. The charge that is made is, so all you're saying is all they got to do is believe in Jesus? Yes, faith alone. For some reason, when I talk with smart people, they think that alone means, and do this. Alone means by itself. I encourage you, even Webster's got that right. Not the little kid Webster's from the 80 TV show, the dictionary. Webster's got it right. Alone, by itself. Faith, alone. That's too easy. Doesn't that give people a license to sin? Well, shouldn't we expect some kind of uh, evidence going on there? You mean like love, peace, patience, joy, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and everything else that's always covered in a women's Bible study? Is that what we're talking about? <laughs> Beth Moore. Okay. Gotcha. But yeah, those are the things. Wait, those are the fruit of the Spirit. Notice that's not the fruit of Jeremy. Everybody notice that? Thank you. (laughs) Vern noticed. Interestingly enough, it's not the fruit of... It's the fruit of the Spirit. Why is that? Because when we yield ourselves to the Lord and His Word, the Spirit is what is living through us. And those things are reproduced. It's not about me. It's not about what I'm doing. It's about me knowing more about God's Word, learning more about who He is, and saying, He's probably got the corner on the market of truth. And so I need to step back and let Him do what He does and believe what He said. That's what makes the difference. 
Well, if you make salvation by faith alone, it's too easy for people. Don't you know that's like giving them a license to sin? Yes, I do. And if I put any stipulations on it that require some sort of response from people besides faith alone, I have corrupted the gospel and said that their reaction or response was necessary to complete the equation. That is not the gospel that saves. Because now you need to fill up whatever is lacking in Christ. Is Christ lacking? Okay, so these implications are serious. The gospel is not faith plus a changed life equals salvation. It is Jesus plus faith equals eternal life. If we want to talk works, that's after the fact. Keep the gospel clear. Well, people will abuse it. They're sinners. The person telling you this is abusing it. And the way that they're abusing it by trying to put works on this relationship prospect is called legalism. Unless you meet some required rules that that person has conjured up in their own mind and is failing to meet on their own anyway, you cannot be accepted. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not about what I do. It's about what Jesus has done. And that's why when he said it is finished, guarantee you look up finished in Webster's, it says done. Done. Now here's the reason why I bring that up. Because in my notes, I found this very interesting. I've, I've written you about, I don't know, two and a half pages talking about this situation, but at the bottom of the first page, everybody thinks that grace and works are intention. The doctrine of eternal rewards alleviates the tension between grace and works. Why is that? Because a Christian is still very much responsible for the sins that they commit. And there will be consequences. But it does not negate Eternal life. At the bottom, you notice there's a guy there, A.W. Pink. Now watch what he wrote here, because he feels the tension of faith and works. Look what he says. He says, If it be true that no attempt to imitate Christ can obtain a sinner's acceptance with God, it is equally true that the emulating of Him is imperatively necessary and absolutely essential in order to the saints preservation, and final salvation. What's he saying? You can't do anything to be saved, but in order to be saved, you better do something. That's how the gospel gets corrupted, and why is that? Well, it's because of passages like we're going to look at today. Because what you find is a lot of people do not have a capacity in their theological understanding of rewards. And this is an issue that I'm hot on because it's so missing from the church. In fact, I think I make some people a little uncomfortable. That's okay. Do I make you uncomfortable, Chuck? Occasionally. I love it. I love it. And that's okay because what that does is that spurs us both on to search the Scriptures. 
Chuck may be right, I may be wrong. Excellent. Let's go to the Word and let's find out. In Luke 19, we have a very interesting situation. And it is so important, if we've ever seen how detrimental that context is to understanding a passage, this would be one. Now, if you've been to Sunday school, you're familiar with Jesus and Zacchaeus, right? He's up in the tree, sycamore tree. You might know that song. Okay, don't sing it. Give it to Emily. Let her sing it. It'll be good. <laughs> but Zacchaeus up, right? And he sees Jesus, and he was a what? Tax collector, which are our favorite people on the face of the earth. Still people, right? Jesus still died for them. Yeah? Notice he invites Jesus to his house and he says, you know what, I'm so convicted of how sinful I am. I'm going to give back to people four times what I took from them. Wow. Now, did he have to do that in order to be saved? No. But the conviction on his heart was so bad that he wanted to make restitution because he had sinned against people. How amazing. Everybody stop for a second and think with me. How amazing if the IRS agent showed up to your door. I want to give you back four times what I've taken from you. That would be a safe bet for them because all of us would have had heart attacks on the doorstep. We had to pay nothing, right? Beautiful. Ha ha. Little jab at the government. Okay, let's move on. And so look at verse 11. This is where we're going to pick up. It's right after that back and forth with Zacchaeus. He stays at his house, but. Look what happens in verse 11. While they were listening to these things, so that probably includes Zacchaeus in the, in the figure there. The disciples are probably present. Notice this. Jesus went on to tell a parable. Now remember, a parable is a principled storytelling device of how he's going to teach. The idea means a truth that comes alongside a principle that you want to communicate. That's what parable means, to come alongside. Okay. So he says here, because, notice the reasons. Number one, he was near Jerusalem. And number two, they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Now let's break this down so that we understand it, okay? He's going to tell this parable. He's going to use this opportunity with the audience that he has in order to teach because there are some factors on the line that necessitate its inclusion. Number one, they were near Jerusalem. Why is that? Everybody turn over to the end of this chapter and watch what transpires. Jesus tells them, you know, go into the town. You're going to find a colt tied up. They ask what you're doing, getting it. Tell them the master needs it. They'll let you go. They'll bring it out to me, the whole deal like that, okay? So we're talking about the triumphal entry, okay? Jesus' entry was anything but triumphal, Okay? In fact, we're going to see the most triumphal part of what was going on, and everything else is just sadness and sorrow. So look at verse uh, 36. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, so it's right outside the city, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Now stop. If, you will, if you've been going through this series with us for a while, if you think back to Matthew 12, verse 28, the miracles that he did, 
If you've noticed those Pharisees, you know that they testify to the Spirit of God working. And if that's the case, the miracles that Jesus performed were due to the Spirit of God being upon Him. If that is the case, then the kingdom of heaven has come near you. Does everybody remember when he said that? It was four verses after they'd say, oh no, the miracles he does, that's by the power of the devil. They had blasphemed him. It was anti-belief. Remember he told them, no, 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 my miracles testify from the Spirit that the kingdom of God has come near you. Therefore, you're accountable for this. So notice, the disciples are out here. Jesus is coming along on the donkey, going along there on the coats. They're praising God, having a good time. They've seen the miracles. The disciples, notice it's disciples, they know who he is. And look what the contents of what they're saying. Blessed, verse 38, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now that sounds like a good time, doesn't it? Of course, you've got the people in the grandstands that got something to say about it, right? Look at the next part, 39. Some of the Pharisees, right, because we love those guys too, but they're kind of shady. In the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because they're good legalists just like anybody else. They're being too loud. We have a noise ordinance. Something like that. They're always using something to shut people down. But look what it says here, verse 40. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Somebody's got to testify who he is. He's the king. But now watch what happens in the very next verse. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and said, Finally! I'm going to set up my kingdom. Let's put the throne down where David sat and sat down on that throne. Rod of iron in my hand and I will begin ruling and reigning in righteousness. Is that what happens? No, he weeps. Now stop for a second. And, and, and let's, just, let's just back up and, and, and get an overview of everything. Jesus Christ is God, right? God know this was going to happen? Yeah, but notice that Jesus being in real time with the experience, this situation made God cry. Think about that for a second. Because he knew what could have been. And because of them perpetuating their sinfulness and letting their hard hearts and selfish ambition want to rule everything, they rejected eternity on earth think about that for just a second and so god weeps over this situation he says here verse 42 here's what he said if everybody see that that's an important word if you had known this day even you the things which make for peace but now they have been hidden from your eyes. In other words, right here, me riding into Jerusalem, this would have been the moment that the kingdom would have been established on earth. But because of your unbelief, we have had to postpone it till a later time. The Jews in unbelief. So notice this is a this is a critical moment we're talking about. This is the repercussions, the beginning of the repercussions of everything we saw in Matthew 12. So he says here, 
Verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Some people believe this is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. I don't think that's it. I think this is talking about the end of the world during the tribulation. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. Children will not be spared. And they will leave in you, they will, sorry, not leave in you one stone upon another because you did, now watch this, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The Messiah is on the scene and he is ready to assume the throne. And instead, you decided that all the good things that he was doing in order to help people, heal people, love people, teach people, whatever it was, casting out sickness, raising the dead, healing the blind, all of those things. No, 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 no. That's Satan doing that work. So notice, why does he need to tell this parable? Because they think at this point he's going to be king. Which makes sense with the number two reason. Go back to verse 11. Not only was he just near to Jerusalem, but notice what was going on here. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear, appear how? Immediately. So notice that he needs to tell this parable in order to dispel the notion that the kingdom is going to occur on earth. That's why all this language about, well, the kingdom's going on now. No, it's not. Jesus has to teach in opposition to that idea. Something else is now taking place. So what is it? Verse 12. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. Now let's stop there. Here's Jesus' story. You got a rich guy. A guy that has honor. But he's going to go away to a distant country. He's going somewhere else. And while he is somewhere else, he is going to receive a kingdom. And he's going to bring that right to rule back with him, and then he's going to establish it from where he left. Does that make sense? Everybody see the how this works who's the nobleman jesus he might know what the distant country is what no tongues here people what no no heaven in fact this is probably what we would consider more precisely the inter-advent age that's a good one to use on jeopardy right the inter-advent age. Here's what that is. It means it's the time between his first advent, when he came as Savior, and his second advent, when he comes as judge. Or to be more precise with the time, we would say from his ascension into the clouds, we're dealing with Acts chapter 1 at this point, until the time when he raptures the church. That will be when he calls to the air and we leave this world. Okay? So he's going to go at that time and he is going to receive a kingdom for himself. It is his kingdom. But notice what it also promises. He's going to do what? He's going to return. And when he returns, he is going to bring that kingdom with him. So everybody sees this, right? This isn't difficult. We get it. Now notice what he says. He called his slaves. 
his servants. Those are who are part of his house and are therefore considered his. And look what it says about this. He called ten of them and he gave them ten minas. A mina is what someone would make at that time for a hundred days worth of work. Or the, 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 the daily wage would be called a denarii or a drachma is what it would be called. Well, a hundred of those and that's what one mina equaled up to be. So a hundred days wages, each one of them got a mina. Ten of them were distributed. Now who'd they come from? Well, the noblemen particularly, but yes, Jesus. You're going to go into the interpretation. That's fine. But yes, notice that it's his... Notice that it doesn't say they did any work to get paid this. He gives it to them freely. And look at the command that he says. Do business with this until I come back. In other words, buy, sell, trade, be engaged with it. So that it will be turning a profit in some way so that it will grow and be beneficial for the nobleman in his estate. Now pay attention to this. In fact, I wrote this down. I thought this was interesting. If you're in hermeneutics class, you probably you have a copy of Vines, right? Vines Words Dictionary? <laughs> Used it for this. Here it is. You ready? It says, to accomplish by traffic, to gain by trading. Getting it involved. Getting it out there. Putting it in the marketplace. So it has time to roll over and to gain greater value. Do business until when? Okay, stop. When he comes back for the church, it's going to be the rapture, right? Has he come back yet? I hope not. (laughs) No, he hasn't. He hasn't at all. But... Would you say that if he's given this to his servants and they're to be doing business until he comes that we're still sitting here in that time? Okay, think about this. Because the time to stop doing business is when he returns. In fact, when he returns, it is a time for him to settle accounts. Now, verse 14 is interesting because all of a sudden you bring in these people who we haven't had in the story yet. Now watch what it is. But his citizens, now notice, his citizens, which immediately shows a relationship. They've got some sort of participation going on here in some way. But look what they say. But his citizens hated him. Now that's not very nice. Has the nobleman given us any reason to think that he should be hated? None whatsoever. In fact, he seems pretty generous, giving everybody 100 days wages and says, here, go out and do business. Take care of this. Invest it. I'm entrusting it to you. Notice, his citizens, different people, hated him. Look what it says after that. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, does that sound like anything we've studied so far? Who are the citizens? No? The Jews. Who's the delegation that goes and speaks on their behalf? The Pharisees. And what is the cry? We don't want him as our king. He may be going to get a kingdom. We don't want it. Everybody see 
Matthew chapter 12 in this one verse. Okay, so now watch what goes on here. Verse 15, when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. In other words, he's ready to settle accounts with servants. What did you guys do while I was away? I was taking care of the business that I needed to in order to bring this kingdom back so that we could establish it together. What you been doing? It's time to settle accounts. No? No. Settle accounts. I turned Laverne's hearing aid up. He's good now. We got two kinds of batteries in the back that Mitch keeps. One for my pack right here and then some to replace for hearing aids. So we're good. Okay. So here's the question. What kind of profit has been made? The nobleman wants to know. Now what's interesting is, is he gave it to ten of them, but we only have three that are represented. And what it seems like here is maybe these three are representations of groups that could possibly be. Now watch what happens here. Verse 16, the first appeared saying, Master, this word in Greek is kurios. It is what we get when we say Lord is the idea in Greek. Lord! Notice how he considers him. And notice Jesus is kind of giving it away by that too. Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Now I had to get out my abacus to do this, but that's a 1,000% return. Little beads, anybody? Okay. 1,000%. This guy do a good job? Oh, man. It's incredible. In fact... The nobleman is very excited. Look what he says after that. And he said to him, Well done. Good slave. This is one of those, click the pen and underline it. The first one here is, Well done. Good slave. And look what he says after this. Because you have been faithful, reliable is the idea, in a very little thing. Now, stop for a second. How many of you consider payment for 100 days wages a little thing? Right? Like, I'll take extra, please. But notice what he tells him. This is a very small thing. Because you've been faithful in this very small thing, you are to be in authority. That word is exousia in the Greek. To have rights, to have power is the idea. It's been placed in your control. Authority over ten cities. Because you were able to take this one coin and multiply it over into ten additional. I am going to take that and your faithfulness in the time while I was away. And while you were busy about my work, to the greatest degree that you could have been, you were sold out without reservation. I am now, in establishing my kingdom, going to give you the right to rule over ten cities alongside me as I reign over everything. Sound like a good deal? Look at the next one, verse 18. The second one came saying, 
Your Mina, Master, Kurios, Lord, has made five Minas, which is a 500% return. Still pretty good, right? Not as good as the first guy, but still pretty good. <clears throat> the nobleman's response is telling. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. What's wrong there? This servant does not hear, well done, good slave. In other words, what he invested while the master was gone and the return that he received when it was presented before him was something that merited him the opportunity to have authority over cities. But as far as a public commendation for everyone to hear, wasn't there. How about the next one? Verse 20, another king saying, Master, now it's the same thing, Kurios, Lord, notice that. Here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. What's that? I hope it was clean. Which chances are, as we saw with the, with the parable of the buried treasure, hidden treasure, they normally hid things in the field, is what they would do. So he wrapped it up, dug a hole, and put it on there and thought, when the master comes back, he's getting this back. At least I still got it. Is that what the nobleman told him to do with it? Which I kept put away in a handkerchief. Verse 21, now watch this. For, there's your causal conjunction, so he's getting ready to explain the motive behind his decision and actions. Watch this. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. This Greek word means harsh, rough, rigid. You're a rough, rigid guy. Notice what he says. You take up what you did not lay down. You reap what you did not sow. Stop. Is that true? It's not true. In fact, it seems from all accounts that we've seen in this brief story, the nobleman is an extremely generous person. Would you agree? Has there been given any reason that someone should fear him? No. But notice that this third slave's interactions are, all I've ever known about your character is to be afraid of you because you take those things that aren't yours. You go and steal other people's stuff and you make it yours. Now stop. If the nobleman is the Lord Jesus, does that sound like him at all? It does not. So the conclusion that a lot of people make is, well, it's easy. That third slave, is, he's not really saved. Well, stop for a second. He's part of the house, isn't he? He was entrusted with the master's mina, was he not? And he received the same command that the others did to engage and do business. The problem here is his failure to obey. And notice that the reason for his failure to obey, here it is, guys, don't miss the, the application here. He didn't know his master on an intimate level. He had a very superficial, Sunday-only, Bible study if I have to. I wouldn't bother to pray right now to save my life. I'll just charge it rather than withhold. Let's lie and get ourselves out of this situation. 
lacking of integrity relationship with his master. He didn't know him. And he obviously didn't value the relationship or what he'd been given. So he didn't obey him. Here's a question. If this coin is sitting out in the field, buried in the earth, if you were Jesus, you'd be like, what have you been doing? What has been going on? I was gone for a while. And you did nothing? Nothing. Well, I did all kinds of stuff. For you or for him? That's the question. The Christian life is a responsibility to be stewarded, not a stage to be applauded. This is not a look at me life. If we are somehow under the guise as Christians, and don't get me wrong, because our Christian book publishers have not helped this at all with their self esteem theology about how good I can be and living my best life now and all that other garbage that they want to tell us about, then we have missed the point of what it is to know joy in serving the Savior. Because if we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, there's not a thing that you and I are lacking to get the job done, to do business to the maximum degree so that we will hear, well done, good slave. Now here are the ramifications of this. Verse 22. He said to him, By your own words, I will judge you. And what's interesting is, is that word judge in the Greek can also be rendered condemn. Look what it says. By your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Does everybody see the word worthless? Yes? Yes? Who's asleep? Stick with me, guys. Okay, what? say it, wicked. This Greek word is actually better translated wicked or evil. He's wicked and evil, he must be on his way to hell. No, he's not. He's a slave just like the rest of them. He's part of the house, but he's completely unfaithful. Everybody see this? He is unfaithful with what the master had freely entrusted in him and he did not do what the master commanded him to do. So he calls him wicked and evil. It is the nobleman's assessment of his performance. It is the opposite of well done, good servant. Look what he says. Did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping? What I did not sow. In other words, he knows that the slave's answer is a complete misrepresentation of his character. Notice that that's a personal offense. That's what you know about me? That's who you think that I am? That's my reputation in your eyes? That's how you want to perceive me to other people? Is that really the truth? Is that really who Jesus is? No. Verse 23. If that's the case, now watch this, then why did you not put my money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest? The least you could have done was getting involved in the money market. Anybody gotten your bank statement lately? 
There's no interest. There's no interest and I have no interest of ever looking at it again because it's so depressing. Because what does it do? What's that? You're better off putting it in the field, probably. At least you'll gain some worms to go fishing with it, right? But I'll look at that thing and they put it in green in order to really convince you it's good, right? And then they put the plus symbol next to it so you really know that it's good. But it doesn't change the fact that it still says 0.02. Yay! What's that? And then they charge you a fee for having an account with them. Way to go, guys. You can't even get to it. Are you having trouble with the debit machine? or? Okay, no, okay. That day's coming. Okay, good, good. I'll put you in the same car with Laverne. You guys will be fine. We'll, we'll let Jim Hall drive. It'll be good. So moving on. <laughs> I love it. All right. So notice. The least you could have done was put it in the bank. So it would have got interest. Stop. That's not even a true statement, is it? The least that he could have done is exactly what he did, and that was nothing. He did nothing. Christian, if you have a redeemed life, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, He has entrusted you with His stuff. And He commands us all, engage in business until I come. Be about my business. Because if you're not about His business and you've squandered what He has entrusted to you, there's going to be a conversation that takes place one day at the judgment seat of Christ. How did you do while I was gone? Well, Lord, I just didn't know anything. Well, remember when you know America had 30 billion Bibles laying around all over the country? You didn't know what I expected? Really? You didn't know? Okay. Notice what happens here. 24. Then he said to the bystanders, and this is just me, I'm not dogmatic about it, but I think this is angels. It seems that when you compare this with the other parables that, that have similar themes, it's angels who are, who are talking to here. Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Now watch this. Verse 25. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. Is ten minas a good return? It's the maximum return you could have gotten. But the unfaithfulness of the third slave has the revoking of the mina that was given to him and further gain for the one who was all about the master's business while he was gone. You don't just get what you got. You get more. They probably turned around and gave him another city. He's actually over 11 cities. Because faithfulness in the Christian life is that precious to the Lord Jesus. I'm hard-pressed to find anything else in this world that we would better be about our time doing than serving Him. So notice, they take it away. And if this is the angels, they're a little astonished by what's going on. Wait, But he's already got ten. Well, that's just how gracious I am. Give him this one too. Notice that grace is even going to confound the minds of celestial beings. That's what's incredible. Our God's a giver. 
He wants us to do well. He entrusts with them everything they would need to do well. The only thing that was left to do was to do it. Just obey. Just believe what He said and walk forward in that mind. Verse 26. Notice that He takes the time to explain it to them. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. Even what he entrusted you with, you won't have anything to show for it when he establishes his kingdom. Instead of having authority over cities alongside him or a public commendation, not condemnation, commendation that comes out of his lips for everyone to hear at this great assembly of the saints. This is someone who is going to be saved, yes, in the kingdom, yes, but entrusted with nothing. Nothing to show in the next life for how they lived this life. Instead of ruling, they will be ruled over. Is the idea. Notice in verse 27. But these enemies of mine, and notice there's a clarification who these enemies are. These enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them. Who's that? It's the Pharisees and, and the Jews. Watch this. Bring them here and slay them in my presence. Unbelief calls for execution. When the kingdom comes about, See, man, this isn't gentle, hippie Jesus. No, it's not. The time to be saved is over. The time for grace on earth is done. This is the time of saying, you did not receive the free pardon of salvation that Jesus completely provided for you on the cross, dying in your place and giving you exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you could ever ask or think in life and made you complete in Christ. So that you could serve him. You didn't want to do any of that. The only result for you is death. However, we see three different types of disciples. The one who assesses everything in their life and says it's all got to be done for Jesus. And I'm not saying all of a sudden if you're a plumber you got to stop being a plumber and become a missionary. I'm saying that in your occupation serve him. If you want to go right Joe the Christian plumber on the side of your car, cool. But you don't have to. That's not going to earn you anything. The second type of disciple is going to be somebody who was part-time. They punched the clock. They put in their time. They got their 40 hours in. We're good. Thankfully, the Lord still sees grace on that. And again, this doesn't in any way negate salvation. It's a free gift. But it's the last guy that I'm concerned about. It's just like when you think about that person in school that just squandered all their potential. Well, they could have done this with their life, and look what they're doing now. How tragic that is. That's a real-life scenario that's going to play out in eternity. How tragic it is that you had everything you needed to be successful, and you wasted it on yourself. Man, I was living for a good time now. Woo! That's great. Could have been so much more in the life to come. So here's my chief concern for this body because I want everybody in the first category. You don't have to worry about if you're a believer in Christ whether or not Jesus has entrusted you with something. He already has. 
The question is, are you doing business now until He comes? And when the opportunity arises and He gathers all of His servants together, He's going to want to have a personal conversation with each one of us and He's going to settle accounts with each one of us. And I'm curious if you can tell me right now in your mind and heart, what is that conversation going to look like? And let me stress it in this way. He sees through the garbage that we often paint as Christian. He sees through it. We don't dupe Him. We don't have sly enough words. We don't cover our tracks well enough for the Almighty Creator of all things who sees all things, knows all things, and is all-powerful cannot grasp that. Now why do I say that? Because if you're sitting here right now thinking about it and you're concluding, you know what? That might be me. I'm probably the person that hasn't done jack diddly with anything that Jesus Christ has freely given me. If that's the case, then I can't think of anything better than to see. I mean, if you think about it, guys, this isn't just a parable. This is prophecy. He is telling you what it's going to look like in the end. And He's letting you know by the choices, decisions that you make now, with what He has freely entrusted to you, you can dictate the result of what your eternal life experience is going to look like. So here's the thing. If we've all read this, and we're all clear on it, and we all have the end in mind, why not start making the better choice now? Think that's a good plan of action? Why not look what's messed up and say, I've got to see what the Lord says about this so that it's in alignment with what He wants. I need to do well. I need to be a faithful steward of what He's entrusted with me. I know what your heading says in your Bible. This isn't about money. It's about what you're doing with your life. Let's pray. Father, ask for Your mercy in ministering these things to our understanding. We know that only the Holy Spirit can do that. I pray, Father, that if we are living wasted, tragic lives, that we not be overwhelmed with that. But we understand, while we still have breath, while we're still living now, we still have time to live all for Your glory. Whatever things that we hold on to that drag us into sin, media, movies, magazines, gambling, playing the lottery, whatever it is that we just, we're just wasting everything that you've entrusted to us. All the issues we have with sex and pornography today in our culture that has robbed all of our men of their manhood, our ridiculous engrossment in political parties and how we think somehow that they are in alignment with the Savior. Father, we need to be rescued from this type of thinking. We need to understand that we serve a king of a coming kingdom. No soldier gets gets tangled up in civilian affairs, but we are about our master's business. Obeying orders. This isn't where we are. Lord, I'm thankful that we are still in a point of grace. And that you lovingly accept us and invite us to infinitely better things. You plead with us. Follow you closely. Father, make us humble and sober 
I pray also that we would respond with wisdom, that we would apply what we've learned so that our house will be built on the rock where it will not collapse. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.